I'm Denny Denham, and this is Win the Day with James Whitaker. You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go! Hey winners, welcome back to Win the Day. If this is your first time here, we sit down with some of the world's true change makers to give you all the tips, tools, and strategies to win the day every day. The quote for this episode comes from H.G. Wells and says, if we don't end war, war will end us. Our guest today is Danny Denham, a globally recognized boxing trainer, author of Fighting Your Demons and Royal Marine Commando. His extraordinary life led him to Iraq, where he played a vital role in the rebuilding, serving as head of security for the Iraqi government and even had his own bodyguard school. On his return from a life at war, Danny has directed his focus to helping people find the positives in whatever adversity they're facing. With a distinguished and eclectic resume, he has proven to be a solution finder and compassionate leader in some of the world's most conflicted and challenging environments. Danny has been an A-list bodyguard, a celebrity personal trainer, founder of multiple boxing gyms, and even fought against child sex slavery. In 2022, he was recruited as Global Operations Director for Breakpoint, a UK-based consulting company run by his good friend, Ollie Ollerton, who's the star of SAS Who Dares Wins and SAS Australia. In this episode, we talk about finding calm in increasing uncertainty, the craziest moments from his elite military career, the legitimacy of war in today's world, and how you can fight your demons once and for all. Before we begin, remember that the right bit of inspiration can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So if there's a friend or loved one out there who needs to hear this episode or could use some help to win the day, share it with them right now. All right, let's win the day with my good friend, Danny Denham. Danny, so great to see you, my friend. Thanks for coming on the Win the Day show. I'm honored to be invited onto your Win the Day show, brother. Thank you for inviting me. Two thick accents today, your Scottish accent, my Australian accent. So if anyone's struggling for this, you can click the link in the show notes. You'll be able to go and get the full transcripts. I mean, it can be hard for people to understand what we're talking about sometimes, right? It's not too bad when an Australian and Scotsman talk, but when two Scotsmen talk, it's definitely a lot harder. It's the same in Australia, right? It's like two Scots guys get together on a windy day, they head that close. For sure, we'll take in Australia. We'll take like fifteen-letter words and turn them into four-letter words by abbreviating everything. So maybe people can even slow down the playback speed on this to make sure they're vibing with us. And and what a, what a career that you have had, professionally, personally, so many incredible things that I'm really excited to talk about today. To kick things off, is there a particular story or a memory from your childhood or your time growing up that's still so vivid today? You know, more so these days than, than ever before, because I'm working with a company called Breakpoint. We'll get to that in a minute. But uh, it was, a, we're trying to get people to focus on their breakpoints. You know, when, when did they, like you say, first of all, have something in their life happen that they'll remember it forever. And I, my first breakpoint was, was in the boxing ring, you know, losing my bo- first boxing fight and then losing seven others. So I lost eight in a row. So my childhood was sort of defined by that long, couple of years of defeat, even though I kept on trying to get better and keep on going to the gym and and stepped up again and got beat again and stepped up again. So I think that was the defining part of my life. It was like I had to accept defeat and I had to find a way out of it. And I suppose here I am 50 years old in a couple of days and uh, still the resilience through that period of my time probably made me who I am today. So yeah, Yeah. maybe that. Accepting defeat is such a big one. We had William Branham, Navy SEAL, who just came on the show. He said in BUDS training, and I know you've done uh, and been involved in a lot of special forces and different training elements too, a lot of the people who go in there to want to be special forces operators have not, uh, one of the reasons they quit is because they're just not comfortable dealing with the adversity and, and people t- telling them that they suck and, and losing on a regular basis. Like if you don't have that growth mindset of being able to overcome resilience, it's a very difficult process to eventually acquire that skill when you're young. I think so. You know, I, for me, I wanted an out. I was in a, in a small village and I wanted to go travel the world. And when I found out about the Royal Marine Commandos, I was like, that looks amazing. <laughs> so my, at 15 years old, my whole mind had gone in directions. I wanted to be this commando character. So it was by going and doing that that I broke my losing streak. You know, I, I went into the Royal Marines um, training. And then right at the very end, after you've done all your commando tests, it was the Royal Marines um, boxing tournament. And um, 
I'd retired by then. I was like, no way, I'm not boxing again. I've done <laughs> my career's over. And I was kind of forced to step up and go in. And I won that fight and then I won another fight. And then I, you know, I was then I was the Royal Marines boxing champion before I even sort of went to a fighting unit. And then on a career, an opportunity to box with Marines, box with the Navy and expand that. Um, which led me to be a boxing coach, I suppose, because at the end of the day, my my time boxing was very small compared to my time coaching, which has been most of my life. You know, I can imagine there would have been some tough lads in the boxing ring and the Royal Marines. There's tough lads in every boxing ring, James. Doesn't <laughs> matter. I think maybe the tougher guys outside the uh, the Royal Marines. You know, there's tough minds in the Marines. But I remember coming across the, the Golden Gloves champion, one of my defeats near the end of my amateur career, and then. Um, this guy was like a, he'd worked all day. You know, we were in the Royal Marines, a Royal Navy boxing team. We were training all day. We were like pro athletes. And then I started to realize, you know, that the mindset that the civilians have is, can be a lot stronger than the mindset of the Marines because we were kind of given everything. Whereas they had to work hard, go to the gym, put the time in in the morning, put the time in in the evening. So their drive and the, the dreams were bigger. In my regards, you know, I, I, I think I became a little bit pig headed perhaps. But uh, when there's tough guys everywhere, James, it's not just in the military, that's for sure. Yeah, plus uh, these days people can think they're tough. If someone else is carrying a gun or, or some other weapon, you can find out very quickly that the skills you might have acquired aren't particularly useful for that situation. Yeah, I think being tough is a local thing. You know, you don't really get guys like us who have been in war and we've, we've uh, been in trouble and been to prison. You know, we've seen the violence, like we know violence. And when you become destined not to be violent all the time, still. No one who's a bully is going to bully me, but it, my attitude has changed towards violence. And I think it's a, it's a great, a great period of my life where I was just so violently minded that it took years of deliberate effort to not be so violent minded. You know, I did that by coming and traveling Australia and um, hanging out with Aboriginals who were violent and aggressive at the time. I wanted to learn their beauty, you know, the, the part of dream time that they had, which was soft. And uh, yeah, so maybe I was being tough, helped them trust me to get to that point where they could share those secrets, I suppose we can call it. Yeah, so much of, of uh, your work and experience is seeing war and the conflict and all those different things. But there's a question I've been really wanting to ask you, and I feel like this might be the perfect time. Out of all the different cultures and things that you have seen and been exposed to, how have you collated all of those things that you've seen and people you met and experiences that you've had in terms of your own personal philosophy about how you think about life and, and growth and those types of things? Well, it's a great question and it could go in so many different ways we could begin. But I think having been in war, it was a Muslim country and coming from a Catholic environment through the IRA war and the, the, the sort of Protestant Catholic war in Ireland, um, religions played a big part in the conflict that I could see. Maybe not at government level, we'll talk about that again, but like for the people, the cultures, they're very dedicated to loving God, you know. So when I was in Iraq, I, I, I really studied hard the Quran, um, taught by Shia, um, Shia men and then taught by Sunni men. So I got both perspectives of what the teachings were like. Very, they're very similar, but also very different, you know. And it's the same as the Protestants and Catholics. So I think the reason I was so, so successful in Iraq and the reason I was so successful in what I do now is because I took time to study the religions and take the nice piece of the peace and love and forgiveness and understanding. I did the same with Buddhism. Um, by knowing those cultural um, dominant feelings or emotions, I found myself able to immerse myself in the culture and not be so judgmental. So I think religion played a big part of me being me. And by coming to Australia, I had to find my own development in spirituality before I found um, religious teachings useful it wasn't so the aboriginals opened my mind up to a dream and a, and a meditation and things like that that i was able to then look at different religions without being emotionally attached and just see it as a, as a as information coming in and over the years you start to understand that everyone who's angry is going against their religious <laughs> writing they're making excuses for it but they're, they're going against it and i think when you're dealing with conflict and you can remind people who are passionately religious that can calm them down really. so success was because of my understanding and, and passion for knowledge and what they love or what they say they love the most.
Yeah, and it's like that religion and these timeless principles without an agenda. Obviously, there are bad people out there who can wield these things and, and make bad things happen as a result. But doing that without an agenda, like it sounds like in your experience, has been a big thing of your growth as well as the people that you've been around. It's hypocritical, you know, like in every war that you're in and you're, you're, you're with the people of, of, of the victims of the war and strengthening them like we were in Iraq, building them to be better soldiers, helping them you know, build a country and, and all that sort of stuff. Sure, there's an argument that we shouldn't have been there in the first place, but we were there and these people needed our help, you know. So it was my duty, I thought, you know, as the head of security, the Iraqi government, is what I was doing mostly in Iraq, was to understand their passion for something greater than themselves. And, um, and when you really understand that, then you start to realize that even though they're saying these things, they're not acting in a way that would 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 say they believe in those things. So it's quite controversial, isn't it? It's like, you know, like, yeah, you say you're a really good Muslim or a really good Christian, but you're doing really bad things that go against everything Christianity is doing and the same in Islam, you know? So it leaves you with a, you're scratching your head half the time going, what, what's, what's the point of anything, you know? For sure, for sure. And that disillusionment of, of war and conflict and society and, and governments and corporations is such a big one. Uh, how did you find yourself in Iraq? I know you had the military... Uh, career before that, but how, how did um, you eventually... How did it come around? Yeah, how did the all roads lead yeah. back to Iraq? <laughs> That's a great question. It's about everything you talk about. It's about dreams and setting goals and, and looking further than where I was, you know. So when I left the Marines, I went traveling around Australia and became spiritually aware, and you know, thanks to the Aboriginal people. And then I came back and I was trying to tell people about this experience, but um, back in the 90s, that, that was way beyond people's even comprehension to understand self-development or meditation or listen to a tribal guy's point of view to help you dream at nighttime a lot easier. You know, people were just like, what are you talking about? You're supposed to be this tough Marine boxer guy <laughs> and, and you're talking all these hippie stuff. So um, I, I suppose it was, a, it was a hard transition coming from the military going into the, the, the spiritual sense of that. Yeah, and what what about when you were the head of security for the Iraqi government during a very traumatic time for the country? What were some of the, the craziest things that you saw during that time? Looking back in hindsight, there was lots of crazy stuff, you know, but it was all about the development of that country, and that was the passion for us who got there. I was the head of security of a cent south central region, um, and when I finally got out to Iraq, I was a bodyguard for years. I suppose that was the answer to that question, you know. I, I, I'd sort of got out of the society I was in, chased my dreams to go down and be uh, in the security industry, become a bodyguard. I did that for a couple of years and worked with some stars and, and you know, did well in that part of the career. So when Iraq broke out, it was a, a quick phone call to me to say, do you want to go? And I was gone three days later. And the passion was to get guys on the ground to secure all the locations in the green zone around the Iraq so that they can go on with um, rebuilding the country. So the first month or two months was amazing. And everyone was getting on really well with the Iraqi people and they were on really well with us. And then around October 2003, there was a lot of terrorist attacks, bombs going off, people getting shot, you know, so we had to tighten our security. Um, so in that part of the, the early days of me being in Iraq, there was not really a lot going on, you know, because we were sort of safe in a, in a little hub of South Central Iraq. Um, and there was rocket attacks and car bombs from time to time, but nothing really that affected me heads on. Um, we lost a woman called Fern Holland for you guys, the American viewers shouldn't remember who Fern Holland is. She was the first civilian woman to be killed in Iraq. Um, she's a beautiful woman. And then the night before she died, she, she sat down with me for hours talking about what it was she was going to do the next day. And, you know, I was telling her, she was with a guy called Bob Zengas, who's a part-time U.S. Marine colonel, and he was doing the media. She was doing women's rights things all over the South Central region. And the translator, Salwa, and Fenn had said to me on the night before, to, there was like a big gathering of people and she had me just on my own for about a good hour and a half. And she was telling me that she had found a woman who was being abused by some Ba'ath Party member of old, the old Saddam regime. And he'd taken over the property of the woman. So Fern had decided that she was gone. She'd given lots of eviction notices and they couldn't listen. And um, she... She decided that if he didn't move by a certain date, he was going to demolish, she was going to demolish the house and get him off the land. And um, she was telling me the story and I was just like, Fern, 
who have you told you're doing this? Have you, have you shared this with any people, the expat community, you know? And she hadn't. And I said to her, I can't let you leave tomorrow. I was the head of security of that location. And I was like, I can't let you leave uh, in the morning. We need to resolve this. You're in danger. If you do this, you're really in danger. And um, so she left. I went to the CIA. I told them. I went to the NCIS. I told them. Told all my guys, don't let her out in the morning. You know, she's, we can't let these guys leave the camp. Something's happening that's going to put her in immediate danger. And she was up with the guys, 6.30 or something, left. And they managed to get out nice and early. You know, I don't know what they said. The, the Gurkhas on the, on the gate, they were like, they were gone. And, you know, we were phoning around. We knew where they were. And they were in a clean skin car. No security, just the three of them. So blonde hair, like someone that looks like my wife, Lisa, you know, about beautiful blonde hair, blue eyes, tiny Bob, you know, decent-sized Marine. And there's... Iraqi translator were driving around the South Central region, going to these women's centres. And um, around 4.30 that day, I got a call from uh, from the Iraqi police, you know, coming through all the, the channels, that three people had been found in a car. They'd been shot to bits. That was my first, oh, fuck, we're at war. You know, this is, this is real. We just lost three people. I knew she was going to die. If she did what she did, and she did what she did, and she died the next day, mate. So. That was traumatic, you know, and for, for everyone that was there, that was the first t- touch of being at war. And that would have been about, I think it was February or March, I'm not really sure, but maybe six months into the tour. Mm. So we'd done all right until then. And then, of course, as that happened, so did the security and the raids and you know, lots of different things. But I think it was just, that was probably my first realisation. My God, I'm at war and people are going to die. And, I have to make sure it wasn't mine. You know, I, had no, I, couldn't, I couldn't help those guys that day, but I knew that it wasn't going to be good. Yeah, people want the action, but be careful what you, be careful what you wish for when you're faced with the, the realities of it. And there, you, you were managing people. You know, there's um, commissioned military people there. There's also um, private mercenaries. Blackwater was, was very heavily publicized for involvement in the region. How difficult mm-hmm. is, it to, is it to balance the actual legitimate military um, soldiers uh, with all the private mercenary forces? You know, when when we first got out there in sort of July 2003, there wasn't, it, the, the people in the circuits from the, around the world, mercenary circuit, we, we don't call it that, but those, those guys in that circuit, it was, it was quite a small knit, you know, they didn't, but you didn't apply for jobs, you didn't have CVs, you were called up by someone who got your job in, and that was how it all started. But then as you start to sort of get more contracts out there, there was a wash of, of people coming in. Not all the people were in the security industry were, were qualified to be there. So you were starting to see, you know, cracks, chinks in the armor, I suppose, of that force. So we were lucky, you know, like the, the guys I was with, a company called Global Risk Strategies. At the time, they're not called anymore. I think they're just called Global, but they work all over the world. But we were the biggest contractor in, in Iraq. We had the green zone all of the green zone up the north down the south we were we were in charge of everything and then blackwater came in near the end of my time in alhilla so that would have been maybe around the april maybe april something like that of 2004 blackwater won the contract to take over the south central region so that was my first encounter with blackwater you know and americans and brits are very different you know and as an Australian and Americans and Brits were very different, you know, so there's no comparison to when an American walks in the room and goes, hey, man, I'm here to save the day. You know, you know he means it, you know. Yeah, like he, every movie. He, <laughs> but he genuinely means it, you know, and you're like, okay, so you're now, it's, 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 it's an interesting concept because Brits don't talk like that. Um, and so I, I was like, I'm, I'm not going to, because we were offered a job with these guys to continue on looking after that location because we've done such a, a wonderful job there, you know, no one died with lots of plans in place. I had 56 Iraqis working all around where we were based um, and I had 56 Iraqis patrolling the area 24-7. So I was able to give them like a, I don't know, as £100 a week or some $100 per week, which is good for them at the time, you know. Um, and that gave some morale into the community and it gave a wantingness to protect us. So I think that's maybe why we were so lucky there because the hearts and minds had been won over and they wanted to protect us. Um, so we were we were successful, you know. But um, when Blackwater came in, they didn't have the same hearts and minds sort of mentality. So 
as far as I could hear, I was gone, but it, there was a lot of um, uh, upset Iraqis that that we had, we lost that contract. Yeah. What about for for soldiers who lose their belief in the legitimacy of whatever war they're in? You know, a lot of stuff came out about, uh, as you mentioned earlier, about whether or not we should have been there in the first place. Of course, you can make an argument for that in, in basically every conflict. Uh, if someone loses their self-belief and, and the, their purpose of the mission in the first place, how damaging is that in terms of their survival instincts and, and how uh, just their mindset of going into combat? It's very cancerous, you know. This is what we talk about now and what we do with Breakpoint. is like, you know, healthy body, healthy mind. These are the foundations for anything. So when you started, started to see the people coming over to Iraq, they were out of the military 10 years, 15 years. They weren't healthy, they weren't strong, they weren't able to run a mile. So, you know, a lot of those guys overreact. I and mean, that's all nations here, not not just my guys, you know, but a lot of these guys can't react properly, so they act aggressively. So there was a lot of murderous things going on in the early days of Iraq. You know, there was a lot of people dying who shouldn't have probably because of that, you know, people were just reacting to things that were kind of scary, but not necessarily um, what they thought it was, you know. So there was a lot... I think that's one of the things that realizing when you're at war now, you're not with the military who are training all day. They've got support from air assets or naval assets or whatever they've got. You know, we don't have that anymore. You were with French Foreign Legion guys, you're with guys from the Marines, guys from the Parachute Regiment, guys from Delta Force, guys from SES, guys from SBS, guys from Navy SEALs. They were just all collectively sort of in one AOR, you know, like one area of responsibility. We all shared it. So yeah, it was it was the most interesting thing I've ever done for sure. I, I loved it. I loved my time in Iraq. You know, to say that I didn't. I I joined the Marines at sixteen, looking to be a warrior. You know, and when I left the Marines, I didn't feel like I had done enough. And then five years in Iraq, I was like, all right, you know what? I think I've earned my boots to be hung up. You know, I've done five years in the theater of war. I was I was quite happy to go back to the boxing gym and be humble. Yeah, how was the camaraderie between all the special forces units that you just mentioned there? Yeah, I think you know because we were all private co company um, operators, you know. So working with guys from Delta Force was a great honor. You know, they're great soldiers, great people. Um, same as the SEALs that I had a chance to work with, the SBS lads, you know, and SAS lads, um, the Rangers. You know, I get nothing but the highest respect for them all, man, because you don't you don't get to that to that level of soldiering without having proven that you're good enough to be there. So, yeah, there's a big camaraderie but throughout the world of the coalition. You don't have to prove yourself to be anything. You, you just are and your character is well received. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't matter what special forces you are. You'll get characters who are unlikable. You know? <laughs> you, you'll, wherever you are, you'll get a character who's just unlikable, but maybe he's good at his job, but you, you let him get away with it. You know? Yeah, it makes up for it somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I can only imagine the mental fog that you would have had after all of the things that you would have you would have seen during that time there and, and as your military career. What was your journey of self discovery after all of that time on the on the front face of war? I felt like I was on fire when I was in Iraq. You know, like every job I had was with high high responsibility and and up in a higher echelon. You know, so I'm working in in sort of command positions that I hadn't had the experience to, and I had a chance to do that for so many for so many years. You know. When I came back from Iraq after sort of almost five years to Australia, all my ambitions lined up and all my ideas and goals set. But I walked straight into a divorce, James. I walked straight into hell. You know, I went I went from a physical war into an emotional war. So I had to use all my crisis management skills in the first few days, in the first few weeks, in the first few months, in the first years. Of coming back from Iraq, so I didn't really have a feeling like I decompressed. I just felt like I was constantly watching what I was saying, have to be diplomatic in the moves I made, you know. So I don't know. It wasn't till many years later, that, and that's why my wife Lisa and I we said, Look, let's just go to to Dubai to begin with, then to Thailand, and re re-energize or recalibrate um, who I'd become after war. Because I wasn't the same person, you know. I certainly had seen so much. I'd, I'd been at high level of society for so long. The head of security of the Iraqi government for three years, running a bodyguard training school. Your mind shifts. Your dimensions shift. Your your ability to understand conflict is, is different. So when you come back to a civilian life and you can see the conflict that's fired at you, you're like, really? You know, like 
really that would cause you an emotional disturbance what's wrong with you it took me years to realize that i think i was in shock for the first couple of years just doing what i could to be part of that i wrote fighting your demons i became a boxing coach personal trainer all these things so i could operate in society so i surrounded myself with positive people it wasn't too much many years later that i just realized that nothing left to give you know i was giving everyone everything and then all of a sudden i just felt like why have I done this? Doesn't make any sense. And that was probably maybe even last year. So that's what's that a long time ago yeah. before I started to realize, wow, like I need to readjust who I who I am to get more out of life because I'd found myself stuck around in the same circle all the time. Yeah. And I can imagine being in a war with all of the assets and resources and weapons and things at your disposal to come back and fight a personal war without any of those things where you feel like you're by yourself in a civilian life. I mean, it's got to be. And in a different country, right? Because I'm oh. from Scotland and we're in Australia. And so it was just one of those. I, I'm glad. I, I look at everything now and say, well, I'm glad that happened because it was the making of who I was to become. After um, in 2008, I didn't know who I was as, as a civilian. I didn't know what I brought to the table. You know, I was inspiring people to do workouts and inspiring people through my book. It just was normal to do it, but I hadn't analyzed yet. Why? Why am I doing that? Why, why am I constantly trying to help others for no reward? Mm. Why? And I remember you sent me fighting. We spoke about this the other day. Like when you sent me fighting your demons, I had it printed out. I'm like, this thing. What a, a hell of a read. One of the most vivid memories I have is driving from where I was working, Brisbane in the city, driving to the boxing gym in Newstead and just, you know, walking and giving you a hug and being like, dude, this book is incredible. So engaging, so many great lessons, hell of a read. So go and grab a copy of Fighting Your Demons. We're going to leave a, a link to that in the show notes. So uh, amazing book. And it must have been a, a good feeling to um, get all of those words out on the page from a lot of the experiences you've had at that time. Well, that was exactly how I dealt with what was going on, you know, with this personal war you, you've talking about, you know, and, and it was a war and anyone who's been through a divorce and child custody battles, you know, there's nothing good about it ever. And there's no, there's no, oh yeah, that will work out. It doesn't, if it's angry, it's wrong. And if it's, if it's angry, the, the kids will suffer, man, you know, but when I wrote Fighting Your Demons, it was a case of, I, I'm, I come from the old style Glasgow type. You don't tell on people, you don't lie, you don't grass, you don't tell people's stories because it's going to give you some fame or anything like that. So I made a decision a long time ago, of like what happened to Iraq stayed in Iraq and sure we can make movies and we can write novels and we can, we can make these incidents fluff around and be something different. But those things that happen, they'll stay there. You know, it was it's war. You don't bring war home because my, my philosophy of it is we went to war to protect you, James, and guys like you, so you would never have to see it. So coming back from war with all these stories of war, you know, defeats the whole point you know you're supposed to miss that so when i wrote fighting your demons the attitude was i want to teach young warriors and i use boxing as my genre you know, of, of explaining things teach young warriors that you learn a lesson from every failure every hard thing that goes on there's a lesson in it and if you focus on the events surrounding it and make that sensational you'll never learn the lesson and and i had to learn that in my personal war because even though I wanted to rage, sure, don't get me wrong, I'm not innocent. I had a couple of rage moments, but only enough to make me pull back and go, I'm not that person. I'm not going to be that person. Um, so fighting the demons was a, it was cathartic. It was just nice to get all this out. And, and I knew I was a great leader when I come back, but I, I knew I'll probably never have a chance to lead like this again. You know, thousands of men under my command at one point, you know, generally hundreds, you know. So I felt like I was a good person. I felt like I was good at my job. Um, I'm good under pressure, and I and I set out to learn how to live in society under the, <laughs> the, the small gaskets of you know everyone's emotions. It took me ages, and, and fighting your demons and the book that came after that, the Bible of boxing, they were they were the saviors of my life. Been able to write that and then teach that for the years through my troubles, be able to teach these lessons and believe in them myself. That was the main thing. You know, being uh, revealing some of the, the harrowing moments and ordeals and traumas and tragedies that happen in a war zone, I think gives people a little bit more gratitude for all the, the luxuries and, and standards of living and, and comforts that we, that we have sitting here. When it, so there's, you and I have sort of touched on this a little bit today about 
Um, you can always question the role of, of wars that we're in. What have you seen in terms, I know that war is such a brutal thing. You and I have had many private conversations about this. When do you feel that war is legitimate yeah. and, and valid as a course of action? Given like obviously the great sacrifice and costs that come along with that. Yeah, in my novel, you know, I I try to put it across that there's war is there's never an option. You know, like there should never be an option. War should be off the table because of the destruction we have witnessed in our lifetimes, our grandparents witnessed it in their lifetimes, and their grandparents in their lifetimes. So we know for the population, for society, there is no benefit. There's no benefit from the victor, there's no benefit from the, the victim of war, right? So you know, maybe America did great in the Second World War because they saved their troops to the very last of their economies. But who knows, man? But um, I think there's no benefits to war unless uh, hundreds of thousands of people are trying to just walk over your border and, and kill a rape and pillage. Of course, then defend against that, and I'll be the first one up there doing that. But when it comes to political dialogue that went wrong or little skirmishes here and there, which were just little fires that could get put out, these are not reasons to go to war. So I think then I'd go back to my religious studies, you know, and, and what's most important to me. And it's like, well, if we're going to live for love and in love, then we have to have love on the table, even at time of war, you know, and I don't think you should, no one needs to go to war. No soldier wants to kill another soldier. You know, even though you've got commandos or the special forces, we're all trained to do it. Once you've done it once or twice, it's not something you lust after. You know, you're broken if you do. It's a sacrifice for the freedom of our people. So I don't think there's ever time for war. There's definitely time for special forces, soldiers and soldiers, because there's so much work to be done in the world. These are the best trained people in the world, and they could do loads of, loads of great work helping people become, helping people get, become not homeless or, or in poverty. These people are, are bred to help and motivate, and they could do great jobs at that. Sending them to die in a political war is probably the saddest thing that I've ever heard about. And I didn't know anything like this until I'd been to war, came back and did my own research. If you asked me in 2008 about this, I'd be like, what? Oh, it's my job, that's what I do. I do it for you, selfishly. Then you come back from war and you watch the news or do your own research and you start to realize that war could have been avoided or he lied about that. That was terrible. What happened to that person who lied that we went to when all those people died? Now we've be proved the guy's lying. He still lives in his mansion. Why is that? You know, that's war is a fog for sure. But the deceit behind the one who started the war needs to be brought to the table. Um, we need to be seeing these people tried for crimes and make, make a, a law that if someone tells a lie that causes other people to go to war or to die, then they should be up for execution and there shouldn't be a discussion about that. So you're, you're okay with politicians making the decisions to go to war on the condition they're held accountable for all the decisions along, along the way that led to it? If you're going to send them in this system, that's what happens. If you're going to send them to war, then you personally have to be held accountable for those decisions that led to that war happening. For example, Tony Blair, George Bush, you know, these guys should be held accountable for, for what they did. I was in Iraq. I was the head of security of the Iraqi government. The Iraqis were building and had the capability to build nuclear and biological chemical weapons. That's never been denied by them, but they didn't have the, the resources and they didn't have materials to be a threat to the world. That was a lie. So that's coming from them. Now we have evidence to say that's real. So and I just think, well, if that is the fact, then we should bring these people who sent us to war to trial and bring those people who gave them that intelligence to trial and knuckle this out so we can avoid it in the future, not just pretend it's, you know, in Afghanistan, they're much the same, even in withdrawal with, with, with Biden. The pointless heartbreak, pointless deaths, political gain, and people suffer. Ukraine, another crazy, poor victim of the West and, the, and Russia, um, bad business deals going wrong, bullying tactics, and they were the victim of that. And the West has should be responsible for that too because they've been throwing business over there with no real thought of the future. You've got Russia pushing back saying, I don't like it. It's got to a conflict. Now Ukraine's part of the EU. I don't know what that means. Does that mean that the EU's armies now can join and go to war with Russia? It looks like that's how it's building. So when you've learned war at a command level and you know war at a soldier level, 
I've got experience in both of them. I would say it's very important at this part of our life for the people to have a bigger voice that their leaders don't do things behind closed doors that will cause the death of potentially millions of people. I'm not big on war, mate. I think it can be avoided. And I think politicians especially have to be held accountable for the actions that they're taking and the lies that they, they tell. Yeah, I think as someone who is so informed as you have been, given your expertise, military career, all the people that you're connected with, you have lived as a civilian and military in so many different levels. It's a very, very informed opinion. So when you mention that, I think people should, should really listen. So thank you for, for sharing that. Boxing's been such a big part of your journey. It's always kept you centered. It was how we initially connected. If you were teaching someone the, yeah. the art of boxing so they could acquire that skill in as short a amount of period as possible, how would you take them through that journey of, of mastery to boxing? Uh, the key to boxing is repetition, right? So you can show someone how to punch and they'll forget it in three seconds. You know, like you can tell them the whole way to do it perfectly. And a pro would understand that they'd make his um, fine adjustments to become better. You tell that to someone who's never boxed before, it will, won't retain. Do you mean? So what you've got to do to someone who is absolute novice in boxing is to say that repetition is the key to everything. So time your feet with your hands. So when your left jab hits the bag, so does your left foot and get that in rhythm. And don't think about any other punch. Just do that a thousand times until your arm falls off. Then do the same, learn the cross and do that a thousand times to your core's breaking all your, your whole body. So then learn the hooks, then learn the uppercuts and just keep on doing that for six months and then come back. And then you'll be ready to start the mastery course. Yeah, it's huge. Uh, you became, you know, this globally recognized boxing coach, celebrity personal trainer to people like Ruby Rose and, and the Veronicas. How did you, how did you fall into, into that line? Yeah, I was never, I, I, we didn't train Ruby Rose, we were just mm. friends with Ruby Rose, but it, it was the Veronicas, Lisa and, um, and Jess of the Veronicas in Australia. They were, it's just by chance, you know, like I, I, I was looking for a maths tutor for my son. It was just couldn't get his math skills up, you know. So I came back from Iraq and I was like, all right, don't worry, I'll get you a tutor. And um, I phoned around a couple of companies and one company sent a guy to me called Julian. And um, he was teaching Gabriel and it was all great. And Gabriel was coming on. He was, he was, he was climbing. I was like, it's amazing. And then um, he was leaving one night and I said, oh, what are you up to tonight? He goes, ah, oh, I'm doing, I've got something to do with merch. He said merch, you know, um, I've got some merch to go pick up, something like that. I said, merch? Do you mean merchandise? And he's like, yeah, yeah. My sisters, they, they've got a clothing brand or something like that. And I said, who's your sisters, mate? And he said, oh, Lisa and Jess from the Veronica's. And I was like, get out of here. <laughs> and then I was like, hey, here's my cards. You know, if they want to train and get strong for it. was the Hook Me Up tour. Their album Hook Me Up, it was that tour. I said, there's my card. Tell them to get in touch with me. And, and um, literally a couple of days later, um, Colleen, the mum, called me. God bless you. She, she passed away recently. And she called me up and she said, can you come down and meet the girls? And I think that was about 6.30. So by 8 o'clock in the evening, I was there in, in, the, in, the, in their apartment having a chat with them, telling them what we could do and signed them up. And the next day we started training and that was a relationship we had for a couple of years. And uh, they trained like twice, sometimes three times a day for like six weeks leading up to the Hook Me Up tour. And... Uh, yeah, that was the beginning of me and the Veronicas. And I went on tour around Australia, uh, around Australia, not all the whole tour, but I managed to get, a, get on tour. From being a bodyguard to a personal trainer to the stars was a, a lovely jump. You know? <laughs> You've done a lot. You've got a very eclectic career. If you're a business owner and want a copy of the 10 biggest mistakes business owners make with their podcast, go to mistakes.wearepodcast.com or click the link in the show notes. It's a free download and we'll show you everything you need to do to start getting a massive ROI from your podcast so you can help a lot more people, get recognized as the authority in your industry and scale your business faster than ever. All right, let's get back into the fun. One thing I wanted to talk to you about, is, and you've mentioned a lot of the demons that you have, you have faced in your life, your book, Fighting Your Demons, is obviously a really impactful book. What are the demons that you see other people faced with these days in this just increasingly volatile and complex and uncertain world that we're in? It's just a brilliant question, James. You know, I say it to all, I say it to my wife. I'm saying it to all of you too, right? If you're angry, you're wrong. It's just it. If you're angry at your children, it's the wrong way to be te teaching them. If you're angry at your husband or wife, it's the wrong way to get them to believe in your story and why you're angry. 
you've got to find a way of just not being angry. I tell you, James, we were we did um, the breakpoint. We did some kids um, talks. No, we were talking to corporates. We we're talking to people of adults. You would generally, when we get a chance to speak to kids the other day, and, and we were te- the, the main focus was the, to let them understand the collaboration between the mind and the body, and the junction between that's breathing. You know, and we we're saying, you know, we've got them to do the plank. You know, not warmed up. Just you know, we know they're going to fail, right? You got them to do the plank for like thirty seconds, and fifty percent of them. Could do it, you know they could do it, but they were just their mind was bored. They were like, "What is this? I'm embarrassed," you know. And then we got them up and we said, "Right, okay. So, did your body give in or did your mind give in?" And, you know, they were like, "What?" And then we got them doing breathing techniques. We got them doing a few exercises to warm up, and then we did it again. And the hundred percent of them lasted the thirty seconds that we asked them to do. And that was the lesson. The lesson is if you breathe and prepare yourself everything else becomes easier. You become stronger. So my lesson to the whole world is if you're angry, you're using, you're using lots of energy, you're erratically breathing, you're frustrated, everything that's good about you is gone. If you could just take the time out just to take a couple of breaths, just like we do when we're under attack, take just a few moments, recalibrate yourself. We say in here, breakpoint, you know, breathe, recalibrate, and then deliver. Just put breath in between your reactions of anger Calm down, two or three breaths, and then speak what it is you want to say. I think if people started doing that, we would be out of conflict and we'd be out of war. One of the keys that the greats have given us, you know, the the Buddhists and stuff like that, is focus on the importance of breath. Focus on the importance of calming yourself down and staying out of stress. If people could do that, the world would be a much better place. The alternative to that is just crazy isn't it these emotional reactions to things rather than having presence and intent of what you do so you can calmly have an idea of what it is that you want as the best outcome out of this and give yourself the best chance of success for all parties it yeah. seems like an absolute no-brainer yeah but my dad is total opposite james right my dad he passed away last last year in july right a year or so before he passed away or maybe longer than that but i i, get, I went to give him a cuddle you know he's from glasgow he's a really uptight guy and i gave him a cuddle and I couldn't believe it. it was like hugging a tree. You know, he was so rigid and so angry, you know, and all his life, he was so highly strung, so anxious, so angry, fly off the handle so quick. So I had that experience of <laughs> having that lunatic bring me up, you know, and then being that lunatic throughout a lot of my years and then going, <laughs> I don't want to be like that. So what can I do the opposite? And it was to calm down. And because I'm an athlete and because I teach relaxation as part of the, re- the recovery period of being an athlete, I could see that if I'm teaching boys to box and girls, it's not just boys anymore, but if I'm teaching the guys to box, I'm looking for relaxation in everything you do, in every movement, every jab, every cross, every slip, everything. I want them to be doing it in a relaxed way. So when you, when you teach that every day, it's hard to st- to be able to be angry and get away with it because people just stand there and go, really? You know, <laughs> you've got to be calm. And I think that, that, that for me, that's the, the biggest lesson that anyone could get. The aboriginals taught me that right, way, way back. You know, like if I was to listen to what the animals were saying or singing or moving or where the water would be, you've, you've got to open all your senses, you know, so you're listening to how the birds are singing, moving the flight path. You're listening to the scrub, the shrubs and the, you know, whatever's in the shrubs and where they're moving to. And then you can start to map out their path. And from their path, then you can start to understand they're going to sources of food or they're going to sources of water. And you can tap into that energy. You can't do that when you're like, what am I doing tomorrow? Oh, I hate that guy. Just the way he speaks. I don't know why I hate him. I just hate him. He just does something. (laughs) And there's constantly something in in the way of that, that calm. And this is where people go wrong. Oh shit! What's he talking about? I thought he was a hard guy. There, it's like just calm down, man. Like you're never going to be a professional boxer who's an elite champion or a champion if you're stressed out. You're just not going to. You won't get. You get so far, and then you meet one of these guys who's super calm. He's going to eat you up. You know, <laughs> it's the same in life. You know, and it's like you can be angry and justify your anger, but you're just causing problems. So yeah, that'd be it. Keep calm. Composure. Oh, such a I am Scottish. We don't keep calm. <laughs> For my wife. <laughs> I love that. If you're watching this, uh, oh, sorry, if you're listening to the podcast, not the video, all the videos are available on YouTube and on Spotify now too. Danny's got an amazing mug. Can you hold that up again? 
We don't, I am Scottish. We don't keep calm. So good. <laughs> that's that's a gift from my wife. You know, and I would like to think it's sarcastic. Then I think myself, but I'm not perfect. So. <laughs> yeah, shout out Lisa and your amazing wife. And speaking of uh, shout outs, Ollie Ollerton, you're doing some great work with Ollie over at Breakpoint. What are the things that's uh, that's coming up that you guys are most excited about? Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, the thing that's uh, just happened was probably the most exciting thing that I've done in my life. You know, I'd say that, I've, you know, I've, I've came over to the UK. I was in Thailand um, with a boxing gym for 10 years. We had a music bar as well, but we're predominantly with boxing out there. And um, Ollie invited me over to become part of his Breakpoint team. And he made me the global operations director, which made me feel really special and really great. For people who don't know Ollie Ollerton, Ollerton is a friend of mine, like, Going on 30 years, we were in the Marines together. We worked out in Iraq together. He was the founder, a co-founder of a, a TV show called SAS Who Dares Wins in the UK, a Channel 4 production. And um, I think it's Channel 7 in Australia. They're running seasons out there right now as well. So Ollie, Ollie and I have been friends for a long time. And um, so when I got out here, it was a chance to sort of not just catch up with an old friend, but jump into his uber fame which was bizarre, you know, because, you know, you're walking down the street and people are like, oh, my God, oh, I love your show. You know? <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah, it's been great. So so last last week we uh, we were working with a, an app called True Connects, a fitness app. Um, I'll leave a link to it as well, James. I'll give you a link for this. So people, if you want to go across, you can get the first two months for free. And we have programs coming up. We're filming them um, last week. So all, we, all last week we're filming and basically, I wrote these programs, much the same as we used to do, James. You know, we would do three to be free. Um, we would do these. We we did this program. It's a lot of basic moves, you know, but but high intensity for thirty minutes. For the first four, and then we did a, a second four, d- different phases. They'll be due to be released out um, in August, and it was just brilliant to get in front of the camera, James, and do what I do <laughs> with Ollie on. The 1st of July, we're down in the Penny Fan, which is a mountain range in Wales, where we've got 120 or so people going to climb that mountain um, on that day. And then we've got some some other stuff going on all, all around the year. It's been pretty busy, mate. So it's been nice <laughs> to sort of come away from my Thailand hideaway straight into the limelight out here with Ollie. And he's doing some amazing things. Um, his books, like you've read, um, Battle Ready and, and um, Breakpoint. These books, yeah. Absolutely brilliant. And these books are sort of the other, he's created a program where he's going around the country teaching people to recognize that point. We're talking mind. I've had a few break points in my life. And it's when you get to that break point, what do you do next? You know, and, and from that, how do you, what's the system? And we're saying this is a system, simple stuff that we're just talking about a minute ago. Learn how to breathe properly. Take a, take a moment to, to realize strengthening your body is important. It does have a coral. There's a mental health, mental wealth aspect to it. So we're just focused on that right now. You know, the world's come out of obviously COVID and the lockdowns. Mental health is a big issue. We can see it. We're, we're having people talk to us all the time about it. We're inspiring people to get on with their life and not look behind them. And you know, I love your podcast, win the day, you know, see today is a new day. What happened in the past, we can't change it. But what we're doing for tomorrow is we can invest today. So let's invest in tomorrow not massively change everything about your life, just incremental little bits often so we can get out of this depressive and fearful state that the whole world seems to be in right now, James. Such important work and you guys are doing an amazing job. Uh, Last question now before we get into the win the day rocket round. On your best day, what's an affirmation that you would write on a flashcard that you could show yourself on your worst day? I am strong, mate. That's it. I was teaching the kids just the other day too. I am strong. I say it all the time, you know, I am strong, simple, I am strong. Yeah, it's so, it's so good. Three. Let's now move into the win the day rocket round. 10 questions for some quick answers. You ready for this one, Danny? Yeah, go for it, brother. Number one, what quote inspires you the most? It's always been the same. Mike Tyson says it. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the nose. That's so fitting. <laughs> Life yeah. just has a way of doing that, doesn't it? Well, that's the same as when you least expect it. Yeah, but it's metaphorically speaking too, isn't it? You know, you've, you've got a plan, you go in one direction. The first thing that happens, not be off the path. A lot of people cry about it and don't move on. But that's just part of the process. You're going you're to get knocked. Number two, morning coffee or evening wine? 
50-50, I can't give up none. <laughs> I love my morning coffee and I love my evening wine. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, what's one bit of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? Um, breathe, don't speak so much. Number four, what book do you gift the most? Facing Your Demons, that's always been a good one. <laughs> Number five, was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? Yeah, I think that would be when I lost the, the eight fights in a row, my insecurity, my insecurity of myself. My, my, I was afraid that I couldn't perform in a certain way. And then when I did get there, um, I realized that fear was, was, shouldn't have been there in the first place. Uh, number six, what's one thing you've learned about failure? It's the foundation to any success. Number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be? Um, I would be greedy and say I want to be with three people. <laughs> I would love to have a chat on a bench with Jesus Christ, Siddhartha Gautama Buddha, and the prophet Muhammad, most merciful. I would love to sit down and have a good chat with those guys for sure. I'll make sure you record it. That'd be, uh, that'd be a great one. I think the world would be <laughs> yeah. interested in <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, uh, for sure. Number eight, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business? It has to be Lisa Denham. My <laughs> life is my, my resource. She's my tool. If it wasn't for Lisa, I don't know where we'd be. <laughs> uh, number nine, share one thing on your bucket list. To be part of the production team of the movie I wrote, which came from my novel. That's the one thing I want to I see. And final question, what's one thing you do to win the day? I, do you know what? My first thing in the morning is to get up and have a shower and a cup of coffee. If I miss the shower on the way to the coffee, my day doesn't go the same way. <laughs> I have to have a shower as soon as I wake up. Um, otherwise, I'm that grumpy. I'm grumpy dad for sure. Yeah, me too. That, that shower as soon as you get up just puts you in that, that state of mind, doesn't it? Shower to coffee, a bit of sunlight, no, and you can conquer the no world. Thought, just go. Yeah, just get in the water, let it, let it heal you, wash away yesterday, and, and there's good. Love it. Well, there are a bunch of ways to connect with Danny, and we'll link to all of these in the show notes. You can follow him on Instagram at Danny underscore Denim. Grab a copy of his awesome book, Fighting Your Demons, on Amazon, and check out the amazing work he's doing with Ollie over at Breakpoint. Again, all of that and more will be linked in the show notes. Brother, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, James. Always a pleasure talking to you, brother. Good luck. I hope you enjoyed that interview. As you heard, our guests love to hear positive feedback no matter where they're at in their careers. So share a comment on the YouTube version of this episode with your favorite takeaway so our guests know they made a difference in your life today. If you're a business owner and want a copy of the 10 biggest mistakes business owners make with their podcast, go to mistakes.wearepodcast.com or click the link in the show notes. It's a free download and we'll show you everything you need to do to start getting a massive ROI from your podcast so you can help a lot more people, get recognized as the authority in your industry and scale your business faster than ever. And if you haven't already, hit the subscribe or follow button so you can get access to episodes like this one as soon as they are released. The Win The Day podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Finally, the right bit of inspiration can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So if there's a friend or loved one out there who needs to hear this episode or could use some help to win the day, share it with them right now. That's all for this episode. Get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always.